I'm uh, thankful to be here to be able to speak with you. Uh, our lesson text uh, for tonight is going to be Luke 15. So if you would, uh, you'll be getting a Bible out. Uh, we will be spending most of our time here. We'll be looking at some other passages. Uh, most of our time and emphasis is going to be on Luke 15. So let's begin with uh, a reading of it. Luke 15 and verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness... And go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who needs no repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins, uh, silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portions of good that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly had filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hard servants have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hard servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great ways off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring out the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come, and because he was received safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, uh, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, where I want to start tonight is I put I I put on my paper Bible study tip number one. Uh, A long time ago, I got a a tip on, on Bible study and it's the idea that you would keep a verse or a passage in context uh, that sometimes when we study things, maybe it's a verse, we read the verse and we like the verse, we like the way it sounds, and we forget to read around the verse. Whether it's the verse before it, whether it's the verse after it, whether it's the whole chapter. And then when you get a feel for the chapter, you read the whole book. And then before long, you read the whole Bible to get the Bible's context. And then you go back to the verse and say, okay, what does this mean? So I want us to use this tip with Jesus' parables. When reading a parable, we need to ask ourselves, well, what's the context of the parable? You know, why did Jesus tell it? You know, we normally define a parable as an earthly story that tells a heavenly meaning. Well, okay, that's good. But what lesson, what heavenly meaning is Jesus trying to teach? 
And why does Jesus tell the story in the first place? Well, last night, you all studied the parable of the sower. And the lesson text was Mark chapter 4. Well, if you are reading Mark chapter 4, you should have already read Mark chapter 3. Is that right? So, when you go back to Mark chapter 3, what do we read? Well, in short, we read of different responses to Jesus and His teachings. You go back up to the chapter 3, first six verses. You have hostile rejection of Jesus. The, the Pharisees are plotting how they may destroy Him. And then in the next six verses, we have like a curious following of Jesus. You have the multitudes coming and, and they want to hear Jesus. They want to be healed by Jesus. And then the next seven verses, you read about the response of total commitment. You read about 12 that Jesus chose that committed their lives to following Jesus, the 12 uh, apostles. And then the next verses, we read about Jesus' own family coming and calling him crazy out of his mind. And then the scribes from Jerusalem saying he has Beelzebub. He's demon-possessed. And then we end the chapter with Jesus telling us who the true family is. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, after you read chapter 3, you may be asking, why all of these different responses? Is something wrong with Jesus? Is something wrong with the message that he's proclaiming? Well, then you turn to chapter 4. And you begin Jesus teaching with the parable of the sower. And the parable is an illustration of what just happened in chapter 3. A sower sows and gets different responses. Why? It's the same sower. It's the same seed. Why the difference? Oh, different soils. It's the soil that makes the difference. And in the explanation, the soil are the heart of people. Now, when you read the parable in the light of the context, do you see uh, what Jesus is doing here? So do you see how context helps us to understand the message of the parable? So hopefully I've convinced you, and if not, after services, we can look at some other ones. But let's turn back to Luke 15. And Luke 15 contains three parables that are linked. Well, tonight you're not going to get just a two-for-one, you're going to get a three-for-one as we look at three parables of Jesus uh, some would actually say this is one parable, so maybe I can get by with that. Uh, that these parables are so linked that it's just one parable that Jesus continues. Uh, but whatever the case, Jesus tells these parables in response to something. He tells these parables to teach a specific point. Well, what is that point? Well, this is where the context comes in. So let's look at, at, at Luke 15, uh, the first three verses. We begin the chapter with Jesus teaching. And, and I want us to notice... Who is in the crowd? There are two very different groups of people that were present. In verse 1 we read, the tax collectors and sinners. They were coming to Jesus to hear Him. You know, it's interesting that we would not normally expect these types of people as the ones coming. Yeah, there was something about Jesus, what He talked about, that they came to Him and they wanted to hear what He had to say. In verse 2 we read of some others in the crowd that day. Pharisees and scribes. They were coming to Jesus, but they were not coming so much to hear Him. Uh, they were coming to complain against Him. You know, verse 2 continues with the complaint. This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, they were upset. You know, why would Jesus do this? They didn't like that Jesus welcomed sinners and spent time with them and teaching them. They looked down upon sinners, avoided them, and even pushed them to the outskirts. You know, to the Pharisee and scribe, You know, sinners were worthless. You know, they viewed them with contempt, and they viewed Jesus with contempt in receiving them. And in Luke's Gospel, it's interesting that this is not the only time that we have sinners coming to Jesus and the religious elite complaining against Him. So let's do this fairly quickly. Uh, One, if you go back to Luke chapter 5, you have Jesus going to Levi's house. You remember when he calls Levi, also known as Matthew. Then he goes back to Levi's house. And the complaint is in Luke 5. uh, Let's see here. In Luke 5 uh, and in verse 30, the scribes and the Pharisees, they complained 
against the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So as we go through these passages, we need to have them going through our mind as we go through Luke 15. The next one uh, in Luke chapter 7, uh, we read about the Pharisees' rejection of John and his teaching, and now the rejection of Jesus and his teaching. And the complaint against Jesus in verse 34 is the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine bitter, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See the common complaint. Then you go on the next story in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. We see Jesus going to Simon's house, a Pharisee's house to eat. And there is a woman who comes in who was a sinner uh, that sat down, anointed Jesus' feet, uh, uh, and wiped him with his hair. And the Pharisee, in verse 39, said, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who has touched him. For she's a sinner. You go on to Luke chapter 18. Uh, so you've got Luke 15, a complaint we'll look at. Now we go to Luke 18. And it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. And it's kind of interesting. It says, A Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I mean, Luke is just setting it up for us. And then you go on to the next chapter, Luke chapter 19. Uh, Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, a tax collector. And do you remember what the, those in the crowd that day said? He is going to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And Jesus said, well, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So let's go back to Luke 15. We see now the complaint in verse 2. It was a common refrain. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now let's read verse 3. It says, so he spoke this parable to them saying. Do you see how verse 3 starts? It starts with so. Jesus speaks this parable in response to their complaint. He pauses his teaching to answer his critics. And again, this is not the first time, nor will it be the last time that Jesus addresses this in Luke's gospel. And listen, this is the context. It is true that there were two groups of people present that day, and Jesus is going to address both groups, yet these lost parables are principally addressed to the attacks of the Pharisees and scribes. You know, Jesus will not only defend his own love and gracious pursuit for the lost, but he will expose the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees and scribes that have led them to view others with contempt and despise them. And by the end of the chapter... The parable is going to show that it was the behavior of the Pharisees that was unnatural and worthy of rebuke, and not that of Jesus. So let's get started. Uh, in verse 4, with the parable of the Good Shepherd. Uh, in verse 4, it starts out, it says, What man of you... Now Jesus starts the parable by asking the question and placing the focus on the crowd. What man of you... And at this point of the teaching, you know, I think the crowd and even the Pharisees would have said, Amen! Yes! If you lose one of your sheep, you go after it. Because a lost sheep will continue to wander farther and farther away. A lost sheep left to itself has no hope of safety and protection. A lost sheep needs to be found because a lost sheep will soon be a dead sheep. Yet going to find the lost sheep will take great effort. Oftentimes the sheep would wander far away. They would go to the cliffs or to the rock faces. But in spite of this, a good shepherd would go great lengths to find the lost sheep. You know, notice verse 4. It says, go after the one which is lost until he finds it. The shepherd is willing to go great lengths because he loves the sheep. The sheep is valuable to him and it is worthy of his pursuit. And when found, there is much rejoicing. You know, the shepherd beans with gladness as he lays the lost sheep now found on his shoulder to take it back to the fold, take it back to safety and protection. The rejoicing is so much that he invites his friends and neighbors to join in. You know, verse 6, rejoice with me. Listen, that's a good story. But Jesus, why are you telling me about sheep? Well, let's read verse 7. I say to you, likewise. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. I don't want us to miss the point 
that Jesus is pointing this teaching to the crowd. And as in context, he's answering the complaints of the Pharisees and scribes. He's pointing it to them. He says, I say to you. Jesus is saying, if you can understand the shepherd leaving the 99 to go find the one lost sheep, and if you can understand the rejoicing that occurs when the one lost sheep is found, then you should be able to understand the joy in heaven when one sinner repents, when that one that was lost is now found. I want to give us a couple points. And we're going to spend a little bit of time with uh, the, the, this first parable because it's going to be setting us up for more. We're going to get payoff later, okay? I would suggest in this parable that Jesus was worse than the Pharisees had made him out to be. He not only receives sinners, but he went looking for them. Jesus is saying that his spending time with tax collectors and sinners, his eating with them and teaching them is consistent with why he came. Do you remember what he said uh, to those complaints in Zacchaeus? Uh, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. No, Jesus knew that mankind was weary and scattered. That man had been harassed by sin and was lost. So Jesus came on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, and I don't think that Jesus chose this shepherd sheep imagery by accident. When Jesus started talking about what a shepherd would do for his sheep, those in the crowd should not have only been thinking about a literal shepherd, But shepherd passages from the scriptures should have been coming to mind. Shepherd and sheep were a familiar biblical metaphor. And remember, the Pharisees and scribes should have not missed this connection because they were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. Let's look at a couple. One, Psalms 23. How many times would they have read, recited, and even sang this psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. restores my soul. Think about in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a transition chapter that it starts out, say, comfort, comfort, speak comfort to my people. Well, why? Because you're going to prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. The King is coming. In Isaiah 40, uh, starting in verse 9, what is it going to look like when the King comes? On Isaiah 40, verse 9, it says, uh, uh, You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judea, uh, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong arm, and and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. And He will feed His flock like a shepherd. And He will gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Listen, that's a picture of the Lord. When the Lord comes, you go to Ezekiel 34. Now, the context of Ezekiel 34 is it actually starts with a rebuke of the irresponsible shepherds. You think about the uh, the shepherds that God had placed over His people, uh, whether it be kings and princes, or whether it be the priests and the teachers of the law, and God said they had not done their job. They had let the sheep be scattered. They had not protected them and provided them with nourishment. So what's God going to do about that? Well, in in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Uh, in, in verse 14, I will feed them in good pastures and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lay down in good fold and feed in the rich, rich pastures. Verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord. I will seek what was lost. I will bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So we can see a, a lot of this language, sheep and shepherd. So going back to Luke 15, is Jesus talking about a shepherd or the shepherd? You know, and if you look at verse 7, it says, Likewise, there will be more joy in heaven. You know, this parable is ultimately pointing us to heaven. 
And we're not just talking about lost sheep, we're talking about lost sinners, people that have been created in the image of God. So the Pharisees and scribes are found not only to be complaining against Jesus, but complaining against the Lord of Psalm 23, the God of Isaiah 40, and the Good Shepherd of Ezekiel 34. You know, as you look at verse 7, I think this last phrase is striking. It says, it says, uh, over one sinner who repents, then over 99 just person who needs no repentance. You know, who could this describe? What person was so righteous that he needed no repentance? Well, the problem with the Pharisees is they thought they could tell you. And it is this self-righteous attitude that Jesus is exposing. The truth is, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And thus we are in need. Uh, we all need the mercy of the good, good shepherd. We need the good shepherd to seek us, to bring us back, to bind us up, and to strengthen us. Now, going back to the imagery of the parable, this, this is going to be our last, last slide on this one, is how should the 99 feel? You know, the 99 sheep, they may be saying, what a worthless sheep that has stalled our progress for a day because it was too stupid to stay with the flock. And what a shame that we were not able to spend time with our shepherd because he left, up, left us and was going looking for you. You know, it may have been better if the wolves have gotten you because with you out of the picture, that would have left us with more attention. Now, I don't know uh, how sheep think, and I don't even know if sheep talk to one another. But these were the things that the Pharisees and the scribes were mothering and complaining about to Jesus. But if you were one of the 99 and you saw your shepherd carrying the lost sheep back on his shoulder. You saw him beaming with joy. You would see the love, the care, and the devotion of the shepherd. And that is your shepherd. If the shepherd was willing to do that for one sheep, that means he's willing to do it for you. You should feel protected and secure in knowing this. If by chance you become lost, you know that you have a shepherd watching over you that cares and a shepherd that will seek you until he finds you. Wow. Which way do we think? Do we see the good shepherd or are we too busy complaining about that dumb sheep? Next, next, next parable, the parable of the searching woman. Now, in the second parable, there's a, there, there's there's a lot of repetition of thought. So we're going to go through quicker. And Jesus repeats things in his teachings for a couple of different reasons. Uh, and parents, you agree with me on this one, because what he is teaching is important and he wants to emphasize it. Or two, because we are not listening very well. And we need to hear it again and again and again. And I think both fits the bill here. You know, I want us to notice some common elements. One, a woman loses one coin out of ten, like one sheep out of a hundred. Yet things are getting a little more focused and that which is lost gets a little more valuable. She searches until she finds it. You know, it's interesting, we have this repetition, right? Verse 4, until he finds it. In verse 8, until she finds it. The search is persisting and unrelenting until it is found. Things are not settled until it is found. There is no limit of one mile distance for the sheep or a time limit of one hour for the coin. No, the search continues until it is found. The goal is recovery. And recovery is the only thing that will satisfy. And again, listen, Jesus is telling this. And and, and I think those in the crowd will say, Amen, we're in agreement. Yes, you would turn your house upside down looking for that one lost coin. It is valuable. You would sweep the house and search carefully until you find it. Well, when found, she rejoices. And she invites her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her. It's interesting in both parables that it is not only a personal joy, but a shared joy. In both cases, we have the phrase, rejoice with me. Verse 6 and verse verse 9. And remember this, because it's going to come up again in the third parable in, in, in in Luke 15. Uh, we have a repetition of likewise. You know, in verse 10, likewise I say to you, uh, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, just like in verse 7, likewise. Again, these parables are not just about lost sheep and lost coins. They're about the longing in the heart of God for every sinner, the sense of loss that would send him searching. And as we have Jesus directing this teaching to the crowd, in verse 10, I say to you, and look at verse 7, I say to you. So Pharisees and scribes, 
If you can understand and relate to this woman searching so diligently to find one lost coin, and if you can understand the rejoicing that occurs when one lost coin is found, likewise, and even more so, uh, you should be able to understand how much joy is in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner who repents, when that one that was lost is now found. So let's turn to the parable of the loving father. And verse 11, <clears throat> it starts out that a certain man had two sons. Now, I want to suggest to you that verse 11, for me, is kind of a setup for the rest of the parable. But it's also going to be a setup or an outline for the rest of our talk tonight. A certain man had two sons. We have three characters, so we're going to have three movements. We're going to look at the younger son. We're going to look at the father. And then we're going to look at the older son. Okay, so verse 11 introduces us to three characters. And that's going to be our outline uh, for the rest. So, so, so let's focus on the younger son. Okay, yeah, focus on the younger son. Uh, good, PowerPoint tells us. Okay, so first, uh, the younger son. You know, we read that this son was determined to live a life of his own. You know, in verse 12, in no uncertain terms, he tells the father that he wishes that he was dead. He's not interested in having a relationship with the father. All he is interested in is what the father will give him. Do you read that in verse 12? He says, give me. You know, he does not consider his father's goodness at this point, the blessing of being in the father's house, and he does not care or, or, or think about the heartbreak uh, that his request and his leaving is going to bring. You know, he is full of himself, and he simply wants to be free of his father. You know, some may ask, well, well why didn't the father just stop him? Well, I think the reason is the father did not because he could not. Because in the boy's heart, he had already left for the far country. Uh, and we see this, you know, that this son is the, is the, is a picture of self-centeredness, right? All that he thinks about is himself. And upon leaving the father's house, he expresses this self-centeredness in self-indulgence. He does what pleases him. You know, he goes to the far country. And it's far in the sense of being away from the father's house, away from his father's rule. You know, he lives out his dream of partying and fulfilling his fleshly desires. You know, this was exactly the life that he was longing for, wasn't it? Or was it? When verse 14, his money didn't last. It says he has spent all and things got worse. There arose a severe famine in the land. Now, the boy who seemingly had everything had began to be in want. In verse 15, things got so bad that he had to get a job. And the only job he could find was feeding the swines. Remember the crowd. There would have been some oohs and ahs. Pigs are unclean. They would, they're not, they uh, were defiled and they would defile you. You know, feeding swine is not a nice job for us, but to the Jewish mind, this is about as low as you can go. Yet it gets worse. He is so in want and so hungry, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pig's food. That's unspeakable, but the thought had crossed his mind. Yet it gets even worse. In verse 16, in the state of hunger and great need, no one gave him anything. All of his so-called friends had left. Now that his funds are gone, they are gone. They were not interested in a relationship. They were only interested in what he could give them. Now, does that not sound familiar? That this was the son's attitude toward the father. You know, I don't want to miss us with the, I don't want us to miss where the son is. His dream of independence from his father has shortly turned into a nightmare in the far country. He has gone from being the son, being the heir of a successful estate. He has gone from receiving his inheritance, having money in the world in his hand, being able to do whatever he desired, to now. Now he's feeding the pigs. And he's wanting to bow down and eat with them in the feeding troughs. He's hungry. He's poor. He's in want. He has no one to help. And brethren, we must acknowledge how bad things are in the far country. This is where sin leads. This is where pursuing uh, every sinful of the uh, every sinful desire of the heart leads. And this is where leaving the father house leaves. You know, the far country took all that he had and gave nothing. The very freedom that had captivated him has now taken him captive. You know, the far country promises happiness, but it brings disappointment. It promises fulfillment, but it brings emptiness. It promises freedom, but it brings enslavement. You know, and I want to suggest to you that this is the story of the entire Bible. 
We were made to have fellowship with our Heavenly Father, to be inside the house and share in His blessings. Yet in our rebellious arrogance, we keep on saying that we don't need the God who created us. And we're tired of His meddling in our lives. So we declare independence from the One who gives us life, breath, and all things. And we set off on our own. We leave the Father's house. We, we, we go off to the far country. Now, I want us to think. We'll think of some examples really quick as we see this thread through the Bible. One is think of Adam and Eve. They are in the garden with God. And they will continue to experience fellowship with God as long as they trust Him. Yet what do we read? They rebelled. They think that a different way may be good, and they eat the fruit which God had already said was not good. And the result was exile. In choosing their own way, they left the Father's house, and they went into a far country. And this continues with Cain. You know, he kills his brother in the language of Genesis 4.16 Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Again, he left the father's house and went to the far country. Think of the people under Moses. In Numbers 14, they're at the edge of the promised land. And what do they do? They fail to trust God. They rebel, and in choosing their own way, they were not able to enter the promised land, the father's house, and they went into the far country of the wilderness. You know, and the pattern just keeps repeating itself. Think of the nations of Israel and Judah. They are in the Father's house, and they have the presence of God in their midst, literally with the temple. But they turned to idolatry and immorality, and the result was exile. The Assyrians took away Israel, and the Babylonians took away Judah. Where did they take them? Into the far country, away from the Father's house. You know, with all of this in mind, I want want us to think about what was said in Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep. Um, we have turned everyone to his own way. So listen, this is the story of the younger son. Yet it's also the story of the entire Bible. And it's also my story. Now going back to Luke 15, the story does not end in the far country. In verse 17 it says he came to himself. And he acknowledged how bad things were in the far country. He acknowledged that he was the one that had gotten in this mess. And he resolved to go back and plead for the Father's mercy. Now, this is, this, this is a picture of repentance. You know, his pride is broken, and, and his humiliation has become humility. I want us to notice the change. The one who left demanded, give me, now returns pleading, make me. The one that could not leave the father's house soon enough is now longing to be with him and is going back to the father. So let's go through the second movement, uh, the focus on the father. Uh, in, in, in verse 20, It says, and he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great ways off, his father saw him and. Now, I stopped mid-verse on purpose. How would you finish that sentence? The father saw him and ordered the servants to stop him and turn him away. The father saw him, was filled with anger and shouted insults at the boy. The father saw him and turned his back, went into the house and shut the door. That might be what we would expect. But that's not what Jesus says. The verse continues. His father saw him and had compassion. And he ran, uh, fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, it said the father saw him. What did the father see? His father saw his son. You know, he didn't see a sinner. He didn't, you know, he saw his son. A son that was lost and is now found. A son that he loved. A son that he had been longing and looking for. A son that he didn't know whether was alive or dead. And when he saw his son, he had compassion. You know, some some have asked, will God run? Well, the father here. He breaks all rules of decorum and correctness. He runs to the son and embraces him. He falls on his neck and kisses him. Now remember, this was the son that was dirty from the pig's filth. Yeah, the father didn't see the filth. He saw his son. And the father is overjoyed to have his son back. Now the son starts his speech uh, in, in verse 21, but he's not even allowed to finish. He's interrupted by the father. In verse 22, the father says, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You know, this idea that the younger son is being re- reinstated as a member of the family, as, as, as a son. 
You know, the father could have made the son grovel or he could have put him to work and make him pay every dollar that he had wasted. But the father did not treat him like he deserved. And that's called mercy. He deserved to be kicked out of the estate. Yet the father allowed him to stay. Yet even more, he treated him with favor and kindness. And that's called grace. The father goes just beyond not kicking him out. No, he receives him. And he reinstates him as a son. And that's grace. You know, at this point, some of us may be thinking that the younger son did not deserve this. That the father should not have been so quick in accepting him back. Instead of quick, bring out the best row, we would be wait. Wait to see if he proves himself worthy. We would rejoice with a lost sheep or a lost coin being found. But, but wait. Wait if a lost son is found who has come back in humility and coming back to the Father's house. You know, we don't want to be too hasty in our rejoicing. You you know how this son is. He may burn you again and make you look like a fool. Do you see how we got this backwards? The Father has it right. In verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to rejoice and be merry. You know, brethren, I want to suggest that this is not only a of God, but it is the story of the Bible and the essence of the gospel. God has created us to be in a relationship with Him, and God desires a loving relationship with His children. Yet a loving relationship risks the possibility of rejection. Yet even in the midst of our rejection, the mess that we have made, remember, all we like sheep have went astray. Yet even in the midst of our rebellion, our Heavenly Father desires for us to return. And when you return, the Father will see you because He's always looking for you. And the Father will feel compassion because His heart yearns for you. Even after we have forsaken the Father, He desires our relationship to be healed. He has a longing for us to return home. So I want us to look at some examples that that we brought up earlier. Let's start with Adam and Eve. In the midst of man's rebellion in the garden, the first thing we read is they heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden. Now, God could have just turned them back into dust, or He could have turned His back on them and written them off. But no, God came to them. And in in the midst of the curses, God spoke a promise to them. God promised that one day the seed of woman would crush the serpent's head. He promised that the deceiver, that sin and death, and that the far country would not have the final word. God had already put a plan in motion by which His children could come back home. I want us to fast forward. How about the Babylonian exile? You know, through the prophets, God spoke words of hope and restoration. Again, God would not leave them in exile. The far country would not have the final word. You know, a passage that a lot of people are familiar with. uh, uh, It's a big passage, so maybe it's a little small. But in, in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 10, it is said, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you. And I will perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And they will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. Now, in light of all this, I want us to think about Jesus and a familiar passage in John three sixteen and 17. It reads, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You know, did you just hear that? Hear that? You know, it's that God so loved the world that He gave His Son and He sent His Son that we might You know, from the beginning, God has been seeking to save His lost children. Just like the shepherd in verse 2 of Luke 15. He went after the one which was lost until he finds it. You know, just like the woman in verse 8. He has been searching carefully until he finds us. You know, and the seeking took unprecedented heights in Jesus. You know, at the announcement of Mary's pregnancy to Joseph, in Matthew 1.21, it says, You shall call His name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
And then in Matthew 1.23, it says, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Do you see the connection? God's greatest desire is to be in relationship with his people. And God took the initiative in seeking us by stepping down in the person of Jesus to make the way home possible. Remember that this was the promise in the garden. That one day the seed of woman would crush the serpent's head. That restoration and victory would be possible. And listen, this is amazing. You know, I don't know what else to say except we serve a prodigal God. Now, you thought that this parable was about a prodigal son, but it's really about a prodigal God. Now, that may seem odd to you, but have you ever looked up the definition of prodigal? The first definition is wastefully, and that would certainly describe the younger son. Yet the second definition is this idea of recklessly extravagant, giving or yielding profusely, lavish, abundant. The idea that you spend until you have nothing left. And that's God. Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure. A God that is not only willing to move furniture like the woman in searching for the coin, but is willing to move heaven and earth and search for His children. A God that sends His own Son to seek and to save that which was lost. A God that knew the high cost of redemption. He knew that it would cost Him His Son. And He continued seeking us anyway. Listen, we serve a prodigal God. A God who gives profusely, lavishly, and abundantly. Think about those in the crowd that day. And I would dare say that no Pharisee had ever dreamed of a God like that. Yet in these parables, Jesus is revealing the God of the Old Testament that they knew so well. You know, from the Garden of Eden and even through the prophets and now in Jesus, God has been in relentless pursuit of His lost people. And brethren, this is the gospel. This is good news. You know, now back to the parable. Again, looking at the father. When the son was in the pig pen, he wasn't for sure how or even if he would be uh, accepted back by his father. Yet I want to suggest that he never doubted his father's goodness. He had experienced a different master in the far country. That master valued the pigs over him. The pigs were full, but he was left hungry. Yet when he thought about his father's house, what did he say? The servants have enough bread and to spare. He remembered his father's goodness. His father was a better master than this pig owner. You know, the pig pen exposed the far country for what it was. Yet it was the father's goodness that led him to repentance and that led him to come back home. Uh, and you know, after he comes back home, is there any doubt about the way that the father feels? The father's greatest longing has come true. And nothing is spared in the celebration. What rejoicing. And this is a mere shadow of the heavenly response. You remember uh, the two verses earlier. In verse 7 and in verse 10. Likewise, I say to you. Likewise, I say to you. There's more joy in heaven. When a sinner repents and comes home. So the third uh, focus. The older son. You know, we started in verse 11 that. A certain man had two sons. And by now, maybe we forgot about that. But in verse, uh, as, as we read on, uh, we see that the older son is in the field and he comes in. He enters in the picture. Well, in verse 28, in response to his brother coming home and the father's rejoicing, he is angry. He will not go into the party. He will not, ha- he will not have any part in receiving this sinner and eating with him. Now, that should sound familiar. Remember verse 2? The scribes and Pharisees complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, from the older brother's perspective, this sinner did not deserve the fatted calf. He does not deserve a celebration, and he's not going to have any part in it. If the father's reaction stirs us with emotion, well, the older son's reaction should stir us further. You know, it's an ugly scene, and I think Jesus meant it to be. And as we read this, we see that the parable is really about the contrasting reactions of the father and the older son to the younger brother's return. One is receiving and rejoicing, while the other is sulking and complaining. And again, that sounds an awful lot where we started in verses 1 through 3. 
We have the sinners and tax collectors coming to Jesus. They hear his teachings and are being brought into the kingdom. And what are the reactions? Jesus is receiving and rejoicing. And while the Pharisees and scribes are sulking and complaining. Yet notice how verse 28 ends. It says the older son, he was angry and would not go in. It says, therefore, therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Just as the father came out to the younger son on the road, we see the father coming out to the older son and pleading with him. You know, this is the character of the father always seeking his son. You know, and I want us to notice kind of the great reversal in the story, right? The one that was out is now in the father's house, and the one that was in is now out. You know, we could say that there's a lot of differences between the two sons. Yet as we read verses 29 and 30, we have the response of the older son and realize that they're more alike than we might have first thought. So I want to think about some of those. One is this language of being a servant. When the younger, when the younger son was returning home, he says, make me like one of your hard servants. Well, now the older son is saying, lo, these many years I've been serving you. You know, this is the way that he views the father. You know, there's no father-son relationship. It's just kind of master-servant. I was thinking about this idea of disobeyed. The younger son had rebelled against the father and brought shame uh, upon the family. You know, the older brother says as much in verse 30. Yet look at the older son. In his self-righteousness, he said, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Yet in the very moment that he speaks this, he is disobeying his father. The father had said, let us eat. And be, uh, be merry. But yet, the older son refuses to go in. And because of the older son's tantrum, the father has to leave the party. And this would have brought shame upon the father as he would have been the head of ceremonies. I want us to see another phrase that's repeated. Give me. In verse 12, the younger son came to the father saying, give me. He was not interested in a relationship. All he was interested in what the father could give him. Well, look at the older son in verse 29. Lo, these many years I've been serving you, and yet you never gave me a young goat. You know, there's no love in that language, no father-son relationship. He was simply serving him in terms of what he could get from the father. And I think it boils down to a common element between the two sons is the idea of self-centeredness. The younger son had a self-centeredness, and it was expressed in self-indulgence as he went into the But the older son had a self-centeredness, and it was expressed in self-righteousness. In both cases, it was all about me and not about the father. Ultimately, they were both living for themselves. And then the last common between the two boys, they were lost. Because of all of the examples above, both sons were lost. The difference is that the younger son had spent time in the pig pen... He had been humbled. He knew he was lost. He returned to the Father's house in in repentance, uh, begging for His mercy. He was received and is currently in the house. Yet the older son still doesn't know he's lost. He's still prideful. And we could call him the prodigal that stayed home because he's wasted an opportunity to have fellowship with such a loving father. And where is he now? He's outside the house. Now I want us to remember the context. Jesus told these parables in response to the complaining of the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. And I think it's true that just as the father is coming out to the older son, that Jesus is coming out to them. Out of a concern for them, he teaches these parables. So, what does this have to do with the Pharisees and scribes? Well, they were out in the field hard at work, just like the older son. Yet, why are they hard at work? Well, they were out, uh, they were out in the field just like the older son. Uh, was it because of a great love and appreciation for God? No. What they did, they did for themselves. You know, think about, uh, in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew 6. You know, why did they do charitable deeds? To be seen by men and to be praised by men. Why did they pray on the street corner? To be seen by men and to be praised by men. You know, why do they fast? To be seen by men and to be praised by men. They are self-serving. 
And that's why they're out working in the field. You know, Jesus' rebuke of them, I want us to listen to this in, in Matthew 15 and in, in verse 8. Jesus says, in quoting Isaiah, he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, it's all about them. It's not about God. Their heart is far from me. This is the problem. It was not about honoring God and seeking a relationship with the Father. It was about self-centeredness and about seeking reward and attention from others. But there's a solution. The solution is to get our relationship right with the Father. And that's the way the story ends. You know, if you look at verses 31 and 32, the Father said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. The Father says, you are with me. And being with me, you are a part of the family. And being a part of the family, you share in the blessings. And then we read verse 32. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. And was lost and is found. And the story doesn't really end. We don't know how the older brother is going to respond. Yet at the end of the story, the father is still reaching out, still pleading with his son to come in. And what that tells me is that we have a father that is so great and that is still reaching out to all of his children. Whatever the reason for their uh, being away from him, self-indulgence, self-righteousness, whatever the form of self-centeredness, he is still pleading with them to please come in. And that's the invitation to everyone here. The father is still pleading with each of us to come in. But yet we must realize our need for Him. We must humble ourselves. And we must come back in repentance asking for mercy as we see our utter and absolute need for Him. So the question I leave you is, well, how will you respond? How will you respond? We don't know how the older brother responds. But Jesus leaves it open-ended as we read it. How will you respond? So I don't know. We have like two minutes. Does Does anybody... Uh, I've got a quick question or observation, uh, or do I just, I can end and sit down. How, how about we end with a prayer? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, as we read your word, help us to see you and come to know you. You are the good shepherd, you are the searching woman, and you are the loving father. When lost, you search for us. You sent your own son to seek and to save us. And when found, you rejoice with the heavenly host at our repentance. May we respond to your grace and submit to Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. May our greatest longing be to to abide in your house forever. Amen.